am Vashi Capellos and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, January 7th. On the show this week, the Republican divide in Washington deepened as President Trump's lawyers called on former chief strategist Steve Bannon to stop talking or risk legal action. How damaging is this latest blow up to the grand old party? Then, a new report blames the U.S. withdrawal from the international stage for major political risks in 2018. What are those risks and what do they mean for Canada? We'll ask one of the authors. Plus, another installment of our occasional series, Food for Thought. This time, we sample vegetarian fare with Democratic Institutions Minister Karina Gold, who in a few months will become the first sitting cabinet minister to give birth. But first, seize and desist. It's been a wild week in D.C. again. This time, author Michael Wolff's new book is fueling the controversy. In a moment, we'll talk to a longtime Republican insider about how the latest scandal is rocking his party. But first, here's your West Block primer on what went down in Washington. A bombshell book out late last week offers the most detailed and telling glimpse inside Trump's White House yet. Author Michael Wolf was a fly on the wall in the West Wing for months, and what he heard was jaw-dropping. Trump's former top advisor Steve Bannon is quoted as describing a meeting between the president's son and a Russian lawyer as treasonous and unpatriotic. He called me a great man last night, so, you know, he obviously changed his tune pretty quick. That excerpt alone prompted Trump to fire back, tweeting, when Bannon was fired, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind. The book's revelation so damaging, Trump's lawyers tried but failed to block it from being released. And joining me now from Washington is Republican strategist Michael Steele. Mr. Steele, thanks very much for joining us. Good to be with you. You're there in D.C. How big of a deal is this book by Michael Wolff? It's an extraordinarily big deal. Last week was one of the most consequential weeks of the Trump presidency in terms of the future of the Republican Party and in many ways the country. I want to ask you more specifically about both the country and, and the party, but I want to get your take on some of the stuff that we've heard that's in the book. Uh, he writes, for example, that 100% of those surrounding the president at the White House believed he's incapable of functioning in his job. Do you think that's true? I worry that it's true. I think that the, the description of the president as someone uh, utterly incapable of receiving new information, either written or verbal, is extremely troubling. I think it tracks with some of the concerns that many people have had uh, even before he was elected. And it's a, it's a frightening prospect for the country. Let me ask you about sort of divide the two parts of the book that we've heard about. First, about you know his own fitness, the, the president's own fitness. But second, about the rift now rift between Steve Bannon and Trump. On the former, what does it say about the party? What does it mean for the Republican Party that there is this sort of what appears to be confirmation of of his lack of fitness for the role? Well, I think that. Republicans and others running both the executive branch and the legislative branch have learned over the past year uh, to compensate for some of the deficiencies in the president himself. I think that after the uh, disaster of the attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare, the success of the tax reform law that is beginning to take effect now is a testament to the ability of congressional Republican leaders and others in the Trump administration to effectively make policy regardless of the president's tweets or what have you. Is that a hard thing to do? Like, I can't it be imagine the it makes it easier. The charge? <laughs> it certainly doesn't make it easier. But at the same time, there is a, a record of success on a, on a range of issues, particularly the economy, which continues to be quite strong. So in your mind, then, has, is that the party distancing itself from Trump? 
I think there's always been a distinction in the minds of the American people between President Trump and the Republican Party. While he was the nominee of the party, while he won the presidential election as a Republican, he does not have a long or deep history with the party, and his brand, partially influenced by the sort of Steve Bannon nationalistic elements, uh, is different from the party as a whole. Let me pick up on Steve Bannon because that was another big thread of the story last week. Uh, he does, you know, he's a polarizing figure, but he does have a base in at least part of the Republican Party. Uh, what do you think this sort of now split between Trump and him means for the Republicans? Well, I hope that it means the end of trying to meld or weld this more nationalistic, uh, borderline xenophobic, if not outright xenophobic, element onto the traditional Republican party of the traditional coalition. I think that it means that we can move forward in a much more uh, effective way, uh, a much more effective form of governance without those impulses, without that, that draw from him. Do you think that means, sorry, am I to interpret it to, to mean that Trump will be less of all those things you just described? Do you think because he will be less influenced by Bannon? I think the administration, hopefully, will be less influenced by those elements. I think that that would be a good thing for the party and a good thing for the country. What other ways do you think Trump will be affected by, by the rift? And, and I've heard you say in the past, for example, he might not focus as much on bashing free trade or, you know, you mentioned some of the other elements, the xenophobic elements, for example. What, what other right. ways do I you think, think that Trump the, could be affected? I think that he could be freer to move in a more traditional Republican direction on two big issues in particular. One is trade, and given the strength of the economy right now, I think it would be a real mistake to try and crack down on trade, to leave NAFTA, to uh, engage in some of the actions that the more nationalist wing has, has urged. The second area is immigration, and I think that the negotiations over the coming weeks offer the opportunity to, one, improve border security, which is a real issue, but two, provide some sort of realistic and humane framework for dealing with folks who are here already, particularly the, the people known as dreamers. Do the revelations in this book, Mr. Steele, put your party in a better or worse position heading into the midterm elections this year? I think if we reduce the influence and impact of the nationalist fringe of characters like Mr. Bannon, who have pulled the party in uncomfortable directions in places like the Alabama Senate race. I think that reducing the risk of divisive primaries that pull Republican candidates to the right, often in irrational ways, I think that's a big plus for the party going into the midterms next year. And speaking of those midterms, before we go, I have to ask, because you've worked with former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney, do you think he's going to run for the Senate seat uh, being vacated by Utah Republican Orrin Hatch? I certainly hope he does. I certainly hope he's successful. I think he is one of the most humane, decent, and talented uh, public servants of his generation, and it would be a huge credit to the United States Senate uh, to have him there. Have you heard from him or anyone around him about his plans? I've not spoken with the governor. I have spoken with some people who are keenly interested in his plans, but uh, I don't have anything, and no news on that front, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, we'll be watching. Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it, Mr. Steele. Thank you. The Eurasia Group, a political risk research and consulting firm, issued its list of the top 10 global risks last week. America's withdrawal on the world stage and China's role in filling that vacuum topped the list. So what does that mean for Canada as our government looks to boost trade opportunities with China? Joining me now from New York is Ian Bremmer, president of the Eurasia Group. Mr. Bremmer, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Good to, sure, my pleasure. 
Before the commercial break, we were talking to a Republican strategist in Washington about the instability there, the battle between the president and his former chief strategist. How much did the political chaos in the U.S. factor into your top 10 geopolitical risks for 2018? Oh, it matters uh, because, I mean, clearly we were moving towards a world that American leadership was going to erode. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for it, but the Trump presidency, uh, his lack of uh, capacity on foreign policy, the massive disagreements uh, that are getting leaked all the time between himself and members of his national security team, I mean, all of that uh, leads to a much more precipitous decline uh, of U.S. influence globally. It happens faster and happens more dramatically than it would have otherwise. And you can see this in the way that other leaders around the world react to the American president. They uh, think that they can less count on the United States. Um, and they're looking to hedge much more effectively, whether it's the Germans and Angela Merkel and certainly the extraordinary public statement that her foreign minister made a couple weeks ago, like nothing you'd ever see from a European foreign minister in the past 20 years, uh, or whether it's the Mexicans or the Canadians uh, or America's allies in Asia. You're seeing it just about everywhere. And I know your report talks about China vocalizing the desire to move into that vacuum, and I'll get to that in a second. But a lot of the instability in the past few months, and especially the past few weeks, has centered around North Korea and events in Iran. How likely is it that you think that the situation or conflict with one or both of those countries will reach a sort of tipping point this year? That's a lot more likely than it has been, right? I mean, I don't think it's 50-50, but it's, it's, you, you want it to be a lottery shot, and it's not. Um, on North Korea, I actually think it's kind of bimodal. There's a bigger chance of a diplomatic breakthrough driven by the South and North Koreans, and that's started. That's the big news for this week. But there's also a bigger chance of incinerating the peninsula. Uh, it's real. And in the case of Iran, it's largely downside. Uh, there's not much upside. It's uh, the, the probably coin flip uh, possibility that the Iranian nuclear deal ends demonstrations in Iran uh, get uh, suppressed by the hardliners. They become more important in the Iranian government. Trump focusing much more on his distaste for the Iranian government and his support uh, for the demonstrators makes it more likely um, that that uh, deal gets ripped up and then the Iranians move back to uh, developing their nuclear capabilities and suddenly we're talking about Israel striking them or the United States. So these are the potential for miscalculations to cause very significant geopolitical confrontation, the kind that we haven't really experienced since 9-11 and haven't experienced from a state uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, those things are real in 2018. And so despite all of the market highs and how well the global economy is truly doing right now, the geopolitics actually look quite bad indeed. And North Korea and Iran, while well, they did factor into your list of geopolitical risks, they were usurped by China. China tops the list of risks that, your, that Eurasia, the Eurasia Group released. Why is that? Well, two reasons. One is because North Korea and Iran are maybe and would be a disaster. China's a, yes, it's here, it's definite. And also China's size makes it such a structural change in the global order. I mean, you and I have never lived through um, a, a country saying we're prepared to play a global leadership role. We weren't before. For the last 20, 30 years, China's been, we're too small, we're too poor. Suddenly, Xi Jinping, much bigger economy, much more consolidation of power. He's the strongest leader since Mao. And the United States, Trump, saying, not our problem, America first. He saw the opportunity to say, we're prepared to be a global leader. 
on climate, on trade, on global architecture. We're going to spend more on the One Belt, One Road plan, seven times more than the Americans did on the Marshall Plan. That's a big deal. And, uh, you know, there's no question that that's, that's a change in the global order that's extremely destabilizing because it's not like the Chinese are going to help build up the U.S.-led order. It's not like the, the handover from the U.K. to the United States with a special relationship where they trust each other. This is a competitor. Uh, to some degrees, it's an antagonist. It's uh, authoritarian regime. It's state capitalists, and they have zero interest in politically reforming, which really changes the way we think that, you know, we thought liberal democracy was going to win, that that was the future. And certainly, you know, Justin Trudeau uh, embodies this idea of rule of law and openness and liberalism. But China is the opposite of that, um, and uh, increasingly it's the Chinese model that seems to have more pull. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask, because Justin Trudeau and his government are in the midst of trying to pursue or boost trade, even pursue a formal agreement with China. How, how risky do you think that is, given what you just said? Uh, it's not that it's risky, it's just that it's really hard. Uh, I mean, if you look at the United Kingdom when, you know, they were talking much more about uh, rule of law and willing to meet the Dalai Lama and human rights, and they, they you know, they, they saw themselves more strategically, less of an economic player. The Chinese preferred the Germans. Why? Germans were bigger, and the Germans focused on the economic relationship. Justin Trudeau has been exceptional on the global stage in talking about human rights in talking about diversity and talking about, you know, sort of uh, whether it's gay rights or women's rights or all the rest. You know, none of this plays in China. They can't stand this stuff. And Canada's small. So there are a lot of countries in the world, I think, that someone like Justin Trudeau would be able to make a, a lot of progress with. But Xi Jinping is not one of them. Okay, thanks very much for your time, Mr. Bremer. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Adjacent to Ottawa's downtown sits Elgin Street, a trendy strip of bars and restaurants catering to a young-ish crowd. Smack in the middle is Pure Kitchen, a vegetarian restaurant and juice bar. And that's where we met up with Democratic Institutions Minister and mom-to-be, Karina Gould. Okay, thank you so much for your time today, Minister. It's nice to see you here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, why did you choose Pure? I, well, I really like this restaurant. Uh, um, it's one where I just, I like the food, I like the variety, I'm gluten-free, so it's really easy for me to find something on the menu, um, and most of it's vegetarian, so that way, I've, if I don't want meat, it's an easy place to come. Um, in Ottawa, sometimes it's hard to eat healthy with our schedules, so mm. this is like a nice treat every once in a while to, to get something that's a bit slower and uh, fresher. And do you like living in Ottawa? Do you have a lot of places to go? Like, do you, has it been an adjustment moving here? Well, I, I always tell people that actually I live in Burlington and work in Ottawa. Right. Um, and I would say that, yeah, there's places that I go, but, uh, you know, most of the time I'm working pretty late. Mm -hmm. And so I don't often get a chance to actually go out for dinner. I usually have cereal or macaroni and cheese for dinner. So. <laughs> so pure is very gourmet. Yes, this is really nice. <laughs> so you ordered the loved salad. What is that? Uh, well, it's kale and dried cranberries and there's sesame seed and uh, squash and a few other vegetables in there. It looks extremely healthy. Yeah. I chose kind of like the most unhealthy version of healthy <laughs> food on the menu, uh, which is like cauliflower wings. Basically looks like stuff rolled in hot sauce. 
<laughs> so I wanted to start off, I guess, by asking you a bit about uh, what drew you to politics. I mean, you're 30 years old. Um, that's ba basically the same age as my youngest sister, and I know all her friends, and I can't imagine any of them thinking, hey, I want to go into federal politics. I want to run and be an MP. So take me back to how that decision came about. Yeah, so I mean, I made the decision when I was 26, because um, I've now been elected for two years, and I made it in February 2014. Um, but I have to admit that when I moved back to Canada after finishing my master's, I just wanted to be involved in politics and I wanted to be involved with the Liberal Party because I really believed in our well, now Prime Minister and the vision that he was putting forward. But I thought of myself as a volunteer, mm -hmm. um, I thought of myself as working on a campaign. I did not see myself as uh, the actual candidate or politician and just because I didn't really have role models yeah. to, to look to in that regard. And actually what ended up happening was... Uh, a uh, kind of friend and mentor of mine one day said, you know, Karina, you should really think about running. And my response to her was actually, I hate running. I Like, why would I, why would I go for a run? Like, I don't want to do that. Because I couldn't actually imagine that she was saying, no, wow. like, run for it office. It was like that far from... Yeah, I just, I wasn't seven. thinking about it. And she was like, no, I mean, run for office. <laughs> like, I think you'd be an excellent candidate and I think you'd be really good at it. And uh, so I kind of took that away. And actually, the other thing she said was, you know, you've always been an advocate for women in politics and young women in politics. And guess what? You're a young woman. And, you know, someone's got to step up and, right. and actually do it. And I went home and I thought about it. And I spoke to my husband who said, I think you'd be fantastic. You should go for it. And then uh, I went to the uh, Montreal Liberal Convention in uh, 2014, heard the prime minister speak was really thinking about it and said, you know what, if there's a time when I want to be part of this, it's now. Uh, I want to be part of, you know, his, uh, his vision. I want to be part of the policies that the party is putting forward right now. I really think that actually we do need more young women in politics and we need more people who are representing that demographic mm -hmm. um, who can go and speak up. Uh, on their behalf and uh, I'm not saying that I speak for every single young woman but I actually think it's really important to have people with specific lived experiences represented in the House of Commons and I thought to myself the worst thing that happens is I lose and I carry on with my life um, but at the same time it's an opportunity to meet incredible people in my community to fight for something that I believe in and to stand up for the issues that matter to me and I know people in Burlington so I did it and so was it has it been what you expected or did you know what to expect I had no idea what to expect and um, I actually had no expectations because my philosophy the whole time was I thought I could win I didn't know if I would win and so I wasn't actually thinking about anything post October 19th, 2015. Right. It was all about getting to election night and being able to look back and say, you know, I worked hard, my team worked hard, we reached out to people in my community, we listened to them and, you know, did everything we could to build the confidence and the trust to, to gain their support. Um, so as of October 20th, I was, uh, you know, that was, that was a new day. And I think actually one of the greatest blessings that I've had is not having those expectations mm -hmm. because every day has been wonderful. Every day has been a learning experience. Every day I've been able to do something new that I didn't know was part of the role of being a member of parliament or part of the role of being a minister. And uh, I just, I, I think it's such an enriching experience and I don't think there's a, uh, another way that you can contribute so fully to your country. So it's it's been a marvelous experience. So what's been the most unexpected part of, of political life? 
I think time management in a sense because I think all of us understand that um, how you know what it means to be busy kind mm -hmm. of except that uh, it's you're you're fully immersed into it right you know and it's not like you ever stop being the member of parliament and so really kind of understanding that role and that position that you hold within your own community uh, but also within the House of Commons I think has been uh, one of the things that I've had to learn and also um, you know what it means to make sacrifices as well uh, you know people always talk about politicians making sacrifices and I kind of got that but I didn't really understand it until for example you know in my previous position as parliamentary secretary um, you know I, I had to and this is not a, a burden whatsoever I got to go represent Canada at the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul but it meant I had to miss one of my best friends weddings and you know and so I think that sometimes we don't always think about you know the personal sacrifices that people are making you know whether it's with regards to their children or their spouses or, or their friends um, to serve the community and none of us do it with any uh, chagrin mm -hmm. right it's not uh, you know it's not like we feel like oh you know I wish I was going to this instead because I think you know most of us as politicians are so honored and privileged to be serving in this role and want to be fully involved in it but it does take a toll on your personal life and the people who who support you and who helped you get there. Do you think that makes it hard to sustain for years and years and years? Like, could you imagine yourself doing this 20 years from now? Uh, right now, I can, <laughs> because as I said, I I, I really love it. You right. know, it's uh, it's intellectually challenging. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, it's hard. It's really really hard, um, which I think makes it really worthwhile. I mean, if it was if it wasn't, it wouldn't be a democracy. Um, and so I, I can see myself continuing on. I mean, obviously, there's more factors at play than me wanting to mm -hmm. do it. I have to continue to, you know, earn the trust of people in my community. But um, it's a constant conversation with your loved ones, right? Because you have to make adjustments to your life and to their lives as well, and how you make time for each other and maybe do things differently than you would have if you weren't in a job that was as all-consuming as this one is. So as far as, you know, what to expect, I guess, in the, in the coming years and your loved ones, you're obviously pregnant. Yes. <laughs> the elephant in the room that maybe the cameras don't see. But yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, how is that going to factor into things or how has that factored into things? It's really cool. I mean, as a, as a young woman watching it, it's really cool to see. It's kind of novel, I think, um, yeah. in a, to a certain degree. So how, how has it impacted your life on the hill and outside the hill? So I'd say up until now, it hasn't that much because, um, you know, being pregnant, uh, I mean, for every woman is a different mm -hmm. experience, but uh, whereas my first trimester was, you know, less fun than my <laughs> second one has been, uh, the house wasn't sitting during my first trimester. So that was actually really good um, in terms of like energy and how I was feeling. Um, but I've been feeling really good <laughs> in the second yeah. trimester and I have a lot of energy. So that hasn't impacted too much. I think the bigger change will be mm -hmm. once I actually have a baby um, and I'm trying to manage that different balance. But I am extremely fortunate to have an incredibly supportive partner who um, is has just been amazing throughout this whole thing and uh, is really kind of, you know, there with me uh, and, you know, taking this journey and excited about playing a bigger part uh, in our child's growth and development. So do you, are you going to take mat leave? Can you take mat leave? Does that work? How does it work for an MP? So, um, well, so there's no mat leave policy and actually there 
within the Parliament of Canada Act, there are only um, two reasons why uh, you can be absent from the House, and one is illness, and the other is constituency business. Um, and you know, so maternity or parental leave is, is neither of those. Um, so the way it's worked up until now is that each member of Parliament, and there are there are currently three who mm -hmm. have babies right now, uh, negotiates kind of with their whip, um, with their party on what their policy is going to be. I know that the Procedures and House Affairs Committee is looking at this. And, um, Do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> should they be? Like, should there be yeah, a, a policy I, about this? Well, I, I think there should be, right? I mean, if we're going to, you know, for me, it's really important there are more young women in politics, mm -hmm. right? It's more, it's important that we have that diversity of who we are as Canadians. And you said um, at the beginning, it's kind of novel that I'm pregnant uh, and in politics, right? And you know, I'd like that to be more normalized, right. right? And I think that's really important for women, no matter which sector and no much what, no matter which industry they're in. Like, you know, not every woman is going to choose to have children, mm -hmm. but we shouldn't be surprised when young women do, and we shouldn't think of it as a setback to their career right. or what they're going to be able to contribute to their job. Um, so I do think it's important that we're having this conversation. Um, obviously, there's never been a minister uh, at the federal yeah. level who's had a baby before, so we're working this out. My plan right now is to take about six to eight weeks, um, but that being said, uh, I'm also encouraging my staff and my officials to think a little bit outside the box, because just because I'm on maternity leave doesn't mean that I'm not you know, completely right. available either, right? So I still want to be involved and, you know, I, again, I haven't had a baby, so we're going to see yeah. how it goes. But uh, given that everyone is healthy and well, uh, my plan is to be back in the house by May, but still involved in the interim. Do you worry at all about about it being like a setback or anything? And I ask that genuinely yeah. because in in my career it's the same thing. Like I think, oh God, if I were to take a year off, somebody would replace me the next day, you know, or they're, you know, I don't know where if I'd be able to continue advancing or that kind of, yeah. does that stuff, uh, do you think about that stuff? Totally, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, and I think it's, well, I know it's actually the number one question that young women ask me right. about politics. And even before I got pregnant, the number one question I got was like, how are you going to balance, you know, maybe wanting to have a family with your career? And I can't say that I have an answer to that. No. All I can say is that I don't see them as an either or, right? For me, both of those things are really important. And you know, maybe I'm going to have to spend more time one day on my career and one day more time one day on my family, depending on what's going on. But I think I can do those things in tandem. Does it? So. Does I guess does you being a minister change things at all? Insofar as you know, obviously the the responsibilities are greater. Yeah. Um, you know, do, do are you like? Can you be away for two months? Does it? You know, is that? So do there, they have to figure so there, out how that works? Yeah. So there is a leave policy right. for ministers. Um, and so, will someone sort of act as your replacement yep. in that time? Oh, yeah. okay. So they'll be an acting. Um, but again, that's why I'm pushing for a little bit of innovation as well, because obviously there's things that I've been working on for the mm -hmm. past year that I want to make sure are coming to fruition, and I still want to be involved in that process. So we're trying to figure things out, and I have to say that you know the Prime Minister, the Clerk of the Privy Council, um, and the senior leadership have been extraordinarily supportive and uh, I think really excited about this actually because it's an opportunity mm -hmm. to do something uh, that's a little different a little bold but hopefully that you know sets the path for whoever's coming up behind me to to 
not have those same fears and worries that maybe I have and you know maybe others have had as well. Mm -hmm. As minister, you were kind of introduced to Canadians as being like the face of a broken promise, <laughs> um, at least when it when it first yeah. happened. Uh, obviously, the electoral reform promise. Um, did you feel that way? Like, did it kind of feel like you had to wear that? Um, well, like I think we made the right decision, you know, and I think that uh, it was, um, you know, obviously. People are depending on what their feelings are and what their objectives are going to take it in different ways. But um, you know, I think it was the right decision at the time, and uh, you know, I'm I'm I stand by it, and I'm and I'm proud of it. And I think that since then, I've also had an opportunity to talk about some of the other things that we're working on. And I introduced legislation on uh, political financing reform. Uh, have been very involved in terms of uh, you know getting. The communications and security establishment to look at cybersecurity during our elections, um, and then continuing to push for other changes to the Elections Act. And I'm currently uh, reviewing, you know, what options we could put forward for an independent leaders' debates commissioner, uh, as well as third-party and political party spending. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm working on. Followed all that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I have to say that. Over the summer, I had the opportunity to travel around the country and talk to Canadians uh, about different things with regards to our elections and our democracy, and it was incredibly positive, well-received, and it was really good because I reached out to different stakeholders that may not have been part of different consultations before. So for example, um, Community Living Ontario or the Regina Women Immigrant Centre to talk about what are some of the barriers that they face in elections or in democracy and to make sure that we're thinking about all of that holistically when we're thinking about what elections mean for everyone in Canada. Okay, cool. I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. I appreciate okay. it. <laughs> Pleasure. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast.